This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Hockey News Podcast. It's Matt Larkin here with Ryan Kennedy and a streamlined Ken Campbell. Kenny, is that a new haircut and who cut your hair? It is a new haircut. Uh, my wife actually cuts my hair and I think she does a heck of a job. Like, well, she's got a lot of greatness to work with, but I think she does pretty well. Oh, and as, as Ryan always says, the hair per 60 on this podcast team is pretty good. That's right. I toot our horns. Yeah. Uh, a team that doesn't have per 60 numbers that are so good right now. It's a great transition to start this podcast. We got to talk about the Vancouver Canucks. Everyone's talking about the Vancouver Canucks, trying to understand what is going on. And, you know, they've just had this road trip from hell. And Steven says, A plus transition. Uh, the Canucks have lost five straight games. They've been outscored 26 to 10 over that span. It's been very ugly watching it. Uh, and, you know, looking at them, I've said this before, but they've got this, I think this, it, it's an intangible thing, but it's it's the syndrome I think teams get where the players, I think they look like they're, they're quitting on the coach, almost subconsciously trying to get him fired and they start giving up. And I, I saw that with the Leafs a couple years ago, or I guess a year and a half ago with Mike Babcock. I think the Canucks are showing signs of that right now as well. But I guess the, the first question I have for you guys is more just in general. Uh, can this season be saved for the Canucks or are they already kind of running out of gas here? We'll start with you, Kenny, the haircut Campbell. <laughs> well, I, I think, I think they're running out of runway. I think this, this might be a lost season. And I think the absolute worst thing that the Vancouver Canucks and Jim Benny could do would be to try and save this season. Uh, you know, this, this just looks to me like, you know, you, you talk about them quitting on the coach. I'm almost wondering if they're quitting on the general manager. Um, you, you know, and, and, and Jim Benning is in a tough spot here because he either makes a move to try and save his job or he watches this thing go off a cliff. And I, I, I would say for the good of the organization, the latter is the, is the way to go. Like, I think the worst thing that they could do right now is make some kind of panic move to, to try to, to try and make the playoffs this season. Um, you know, they've got a good core. I don't think they're as bad as they're playing. They probably weren't as, as good as they showed last year. Uh, you know, I mean, I think everything sort of got magnified by the year they had last year and maybe everybody's expectations got a little bit accelerated. And I mean, this is a young group that's very, very good. In, in fact, in fact, to tell you the truth, what I would do right now, if I were the Vancouver Canucks is I would sign Travis Green to an extension. That's what I would do. I would do that to show this organization that we believe in our coach. This guy's a good coach. You know, he's been a good coach for three and a half years. He, he, maybe he's been a crappy coach for three weeks. Um, and I don't even know if he's been a bad coach for three weeks, but you can't ignore what he's done up to this point. And if I were the, the Vancouver Canucks, the first thing I'd do is I would give Travis Green an extension and I'd say, he's our coach. He's our guy. We're going to go through this. We're going to go through these growing pains and we're going to come out the other side better. Yeah, I agree. I think that my biggest fear for the Canucks would be that Benning pulls a Peter Shirelli and, you know, signs, you know, somebody to a long-term deal right before he's kicked out the door. And I, you know, I look at green and, and Matt and I were talking about this just before we began the podcast. If the Canucks fired Travis Green, I could totally see him going to Seattle and taking the crack into like the conference final <laughs> right away. You know, like you, you, you're right. You want to hang on to that asset. And 
it just felt like every move Vancouver made in the offseason has backfired. Yep. They, they just they let the wrong guys go. You know, Toffoli has been excellent. And, you know, they paid a pretty penny to get him in the first place. You know, Tyler Madden, pretty good prospect. You know, got a first pro game with uh, AHL Ontario the other night. And, you know, Jacob Markstrom, they couldn't hold on to him. Uh, they couldn't hold on to Chris Tanev. Yeah. Uh, you know, they bring in Nate Schmidt, which at the time seemed all right, but obviously not the same kind of player and and clearly not what they needed uh, on the back end, at least not yet. And, you know, for me, yeah, their season's done. I mean, you know, mathematically, sure, they're still in it, but I think they would have to win like two out of every three games from here on out. And if you think about, you know, the teams that they're going to have to play against, it's probably not, it's not going to happen and you shouldn't pretend that it will so for me it's a lost season I think if your ownership you have to make sure that um, Benning doesn't do anything that harms the organization further uh, before he leaves if ownership chooses to you know go in the direction with GM but I feel it's damage control right now and you know RIP Vancouver Sports Talk Radio because I know it's already pretty dour out there. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny, Ryan, you say, you know, Benning pulling a Peter Shrelly. I think you're being too soft on Benning. You could just say Benning could pull a Benning because Benning's already pulled lots of himself by doing things like sign that Louis Erickson deal and Tyler Myers. And, you know, a lot of those contracts are already taking on water and kind of holding back the team from being able to do things like, you know, retain Tyler Toffoli and retain Chris Tanev. Markstrom, I, I can understand because, you know, you're, you're trying to groom Thatcher Demko. I understand why Markstrom walked. But it's interesting, you know, so I, I do think that, you could say a lot of the problems are really due with, to do with Benning. But if you look at the structure of the Canucks right now, okay, they're terrible defensively. They've allowed the most shots per game in the NHL, 34.7. But last year, they were second worst, 33.6. They were a terrible, terrible defensive hockey team last year. They bled chances. Jacob Markstrom had that amazing season, fourth in Vezina voting. He bailed them out. He masked the problems. I kind of feel dumb in hindsight for picking Vancouver to finish. I believe I picked them to finish first in the division. Really, they did not rectify those problems. And you could say that could be laid at the feet of coaching because, you know, you look at the guys they lost, but they were just as bad with those guys in the lineup last year. And maybe you could point toward coaching. I have heard some whispers from people close to that team that the players are starting to quit on Travis Green and that he's more of an old school kind of guy and that this relatively young core isn't necessarily messing with him. So I wouldn't be surprised if we do see coaching change soon. I wouldn't be surprised if while we're recording this podcast, Stephen comes in and tells us that Travis Green's being fired. I'm not saying it's fair to him, but you know, if you look at the, the way the power structure goes in the NHL, when a team is starting to get in big trouble, the GM first thing GM's going to do is take a human shield. That's his coach. And coach always goes down first, whether it's fair or not. It doesn't go GM, then coach. It goes coach, then GM. So I think Travis Green could be in hot water soon if the Canucks can't turn this around. We'll see what happens. Um, Let's talk about the Columbus Blue Jackets. We have a couple things to talk about regarding the Blue Jackets. They've had a hard couple of days. Uh, They got pretty badly jobbed in a game on the weekend with a botched offside call. It was involving a technician, a trainee, who wasn't supposed to be speaking and making calls. The trainee said, good goal. The the referees, the officials took that as gospel. We find out later that it was a botched call. Couldn't be reversed. So, Kenny, I want to give you the floor first. I know you've written about this already this week. Do we have to amend the rule book to allow for calls to be reversed deeper into the game? What do we do here to fix this problem? Because obviously Columbus really got screwed over here, and you never know – a point here, a point there. It could cost them a playoff spot for all we know. So what do you do? 
Exactly. Exactly. Yes. I do think you need to amend the rule book here because I mean, the, the, the NHL, I mean, to its credit, they owned up to the mistake. They told the Blue Jackets, they took the fifth, the last 45 seconds off the, off the penalty that they gave them. And, and that's all good, you know, but they couldn't reverse the call because they, 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 the rule book tells them they can't reverse the call. Once that puck is dropped, you cannot go, you can't, you can't allow or disallow a, a, a disputed goal. So they were, their hands were tied. And, and I only, and I shudder to think of what would have happened if Carolina had scored on that power play too, before the second period ended, that would have been two goals. that shouldn't have counted that, that, that ended up counting. So um, yeah, no, I think, I think the rule book needs to be changed. And, and, you know, in a situation like that, you have to have an extenuating circumstance because the whole spirit of this rule, the whole reason why we got into this nonsense and I think it's nonsense, to be honest with you, is because Matt Duchesne was 50 feet offside one time and they had to they wanted to get the calls right. So if you want to get the calls right, put in the infrastructure and the mechanisms to get the calls right. I mean, personally, I think just take this out, like take out this offside, this offside uh, review, because it was 17 seconds after the zone entry that that goal was scored. It, the, the zone entry had very, very little to do with the goal being scored. And oftentimes we see that like 17 seconds. So really, I mean, I, I, I would prefer they just took out video review for, for offsides and, and allowed for human error and, and all the things that come with it. And, and, uh, but they're not going to do that. So I think they need to change the rule book to reflect the fact that sometimes even when you try everything to, do, you know, try everything you can to get it right, you sometimes get it wrong. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, further complicating this situation with the technician is that due to COVID protocols, you know, they couldn't get the attention of the referees and the linesmen as easily as they would have, you know, during, you know, normal times, normal game time because of social distancing and the way the rink was set up and, and things like that. I, I feel that they should, should, should have just reversed it. I know it's, you know, it's not in the rule book, but I mean, this is a season like no other. And it was the sort of thing where, yeah, they were training a guy, the wrong thing was said, you know, the, you know, you had these pandemic protocols, which are in place for a very good reason, but worked against them in this case. If you have a chance to make it right, and, and we saw the worst case scenario play out, Columbus lost by one goal. Who knows what would have happened if they had, if they just reversed it. And I know Carolina would have, you know, rightly freaked out because the call was there. But if you want to make it right, I feel this is the sort of situation that doesn't come up very often. And I don't know, to me, it feels like an exception should have been made where they just, they, they could have gone to both teams and be like, look, this is what happened. It's like a one in a billion chance that all these things are going to line up the wrong way, but they did. We want to make it right. We're just going to, we're going to wind it back. We're going to wind back the clock. Let's, let's just do this. Right. And, and that was my question because from what I understand, the officials didn't fully realize that the call was botched until the intermission. Right. So do you, do you wind it back and say, okay, we have to go back in time and now it's going to be still the, the second period. Uh, I guess that's what you do. Mm -hmm. Ultimately there's a solution to all this. You get rid of offside calls, period. You get rid of the rule. Who cares about offsides in hockey? What do they do? All they do is make people angry. They take away goals. They don't add any fun to the game. They're, they are pointless. And there's no downside to getting rid of them. It's like, well, then 
then teams can just do whatever they want. So what? They can do whatever they want. They can get caught with five guys in their the other zone. Then there's a breakaway the other way. Who cares about offsides? Who cares? Who likes offsides? Nobody. Get rid of offsides. I'm with you, Dom from the Athletic. He's a big no offside guy. I'm in that camp too. Offsides can go to hell. <laughs> you are saying offsides plural, right? But we yes. know that it is offside, not offside. Offsides. Yes. So I'm using it in the correct context. Right. I I, yeah. Okay. Calling them offside. Everybody knows that. Like I don't say Stanley Cup finals. There's one final. Right. Right. And, and of course, none of us say jersey. We say sweater. Yeah. Okay. Go on. Keep no, going. we say jersey because they don't wear sweaters anymore. Frank <laughs> Clayhorn wore a sweater. Sidney Crosby wears a jersey. And Frank Save Clayhorn. for another podcast. Frank Clayhorn stained a lot of sweaters with blood. That guy was a yes. criminal on skates. Uh, sticking with the Columbus Blue Jackets, we've got to talk about the Patrick Line benching from John Tortorella, which happened Monday night. So we're recording this podcast Tuesday morning. John Tortorella is going to speak with media later today in the afternoon. So by the time you listen to this, it's possible Torts has spoken again and we will have learned more. We're not sure, but we still have to talk about it. It's too big of a deal. So Patrick Line, fourth game as a Columbus Blue Jacket. His last shift is with six minutes and 19 seconds left in the second period. The game is tied going into the third. He never sees the ice. After the game, he explains that the benching story will stay in the locker room. And, you know, I, I've heard, again, some whispers from people kind of close to, you know, Line A loyalists, I'll say. There's no injury at play. So we know it's not like there's, you know, Line A was actually hurt. No, there's a lot of rage coming from the Line A loyalists. I'll leave it at that. Okay. And so we know something is amiss here already after game four. So what's going on? The question I have for you guys is, is John Tortorella and are the Columbus Blue Jackets playing a pretty dangerous game with someone who does not have a contract for next year, who's an RFA? And do you risk running him out of town right away if you're not going to play him, if you're going to submit him to the torts rules this quickly? What do you think, Mr. Kennedy? I think it's a, a very legitimate fear. And, you know, the problem with Tortorella is that he's pulled so many stunts over the years that he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt anymore. And, you know, I know there was some talk after the game last night that, you know, the Columbus, they're still trying to work out certain defensive schemes and structures. And, um, you know, that might've played a part of it. And um, unfortunately, you know, when most of us see Tortorella, we think, okay, well, there's a guy that's very rigid in his ways. And sometimes it can be very effective, but, if you fall in a favor, you're just kind of done in his eyes. And with line A, yeah, he's a bad defensive player, but it's not because he doesn't try. He's just not good at it. And he's a young guy. I mean, you know, if he puts in the work and it seems like he's willing to do so, get marginally better over the years. So I, I don't think it's an effort thing. And Again, it just goes back to Columbus in general, like both Tortorella and Yarmo Kekaline and the GM, like they're hard dudes, you know, and a lot of the times it, it, it benefits them. And we've seen that with Columbus, they've had probably more success in the playoffs than they should if you look at the roster on paper. And, you know, credit goes to those men for putting something together that is very specific. But when it doesn't work, it goes sideways really fast. And we've seen that with, you know, a lot of players who have left Columbus already. And, you know, obviously the fear is, yeah, you can put together a great structured team, but you can't get elite players to play in Columbus under that system. 
You know what I'm getting tired of, guys? I'm getting tired of when GMs use the only leverage they have and when coaches use the only leverage they have. We got to worry about pissing off these prima donnas. And you know what? To me, like, if Patrick Line is going to, 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 uh, leave town because he got benched in his fourth game for a period and, and a half, then as far as the Columbus Blue Jackets are concerned, I'm sure it's like, see you later. Don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Because you know what? Come on, guys. I, I mean, I, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I really don't. I think this is going to be a blip on the screen. I think Patrick Line is going to come back like Jack Roslovic said. And in the next game, he's going to be the best player on the ice. I think Jack, I, I think, and if you want to establish with a player, what it, what the, what the, the standard is on a team and what they expect on that team, when better to do it than when he, when he, when he doesn't back check in his fourth game. And Ryan, I, I don't agree that it's not because he doesn't try. I think it's because he doesn't try. I think he doesn't back check because he doesn't try. And he thinks that he, he not, not, and it's not a bad thing. It's because he's saving himself for the other end of the ice, right? Like he wants to do the other work once he gets the puck. And, and that's not acceptable in Columbus. And, and you know what? John Tortorella is saying, this isn't acceptable. There's a standard here. And, you know, John Tortorella, it appears, is not going anywhere. Like, like to me, and, you know, and, and I know his contract's up after this season, but, you know, they could have basically, when this whole thing happened with Pierre-Luc Dubois in the first place, they could have basically told, chosen Pierre-Luc Dubois over him and said, look, you're in the last year of your deal. We'll pay you the rest of the year. Goodbye. You're done. We're going to bring someone else in. They love, they love John Tortorella. They like what kind of coach he is. They like what he brings. I don't like everything about him. I hate that he makes guys block shots in with 30 seconds to go in a six, two game when it doesn't even matter. And a guy might get hurt. I don't agree with everything, but you know what? He's the coach and he wants to establish it. And I, I see nothing wrong with him doing that early in a guy's tenure there to let him know this is how we play. I don't know how you used to play where you were before, but you're not going to play that way when you're here. It's, it's fun. I don't, I feel like we don't disagree on stuff enough. So this is fun because I, I don't agree uh, to me. You know, I get the logic of wanting line a to buy in, but it, it's not what line a was brought in to do. You have a team of Boone Jenner's and Nick Felino's. You don't bring in a sports car and get mad because it can't off road in the mud. That's not what it's brought in to do. It's brought in to be a high performance vehicle. And to me, doing it this early and this publicly is, I don't think this was, you know, lining needed to know how to play defense in game four as a blue jacket. This was a stunt. This was John Tortorella peeing on the carpet to Marcus territory and say, you're Patrick Lyon. I don't give a F I'm John Tortorella lifts his leg. Pee, 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 pees on the carpet to send a message to Patrick Line that this is his team. And I think that's a dangerous message to send this early. If you want to get in Patrick Line's head about defense, do it in practice. Don't do it in his fourth game with the team when it's a tie game and you risk costing your team a victory because one of the best goal scorers in the world is not available to you. That's Tortorella putting his ego before the team, possibly costing his team a game. He's lucky that they came back and still or didn't come back, but they, they won the game. But it easily could have cost them a game because they didn't have the best goal score available. So I'm not a fan of it. And I, I think we're getting, again, set up for another him versus me situation. How many good players are going to be sent out of Columbus because there's a, a decision to choose coach over player? And I think it's risky. And again, because both guys have their contract expiring, this could end up heading toward a me versus him decision for Yarmo Kekalainen to have to make. And I don't think we should be having this conversation already. It's four games. 
let Lennon get settled. He just had visa hell going through the embassy to try and get his work visa. He's been waiting to play. He's rusty. He hasn't had a chance to get his feet wet. You're going to bench him in game four? BS. Hate the decision by Tortorella. Next up, we've got, let's talk about Tom Brady, which sounds strange to do, but I was inspired by just a lot of conversations I was hearing people have during the Super Bowl, which was just, you know, Tom Brady, he's won seven Super Bowls. No other NFL team has won more than six Super Bowls. So people were asking, you know, I saw on Twitter a couple of friends, is there a Tom Brady equivalent in the NHL? I don't know if there is, but I'm curious what you guys think. So let's start with you, Kenneth. Do you think there is a Tom Brady of hockey? Well, I'm not sure that there's a Tom Brady of hockey, but if there is one, I'm going to go with Mark Messier. Um, because they both, both guys were unheralded as, as, as prospects. Like Messier was picked 48th overall in 1979 in what was the probably the best draft ever. Um, and Tom Brady was like 190 or 100 and something, 99th or something in 1999 or something. He was way down there. They didn't do much earlier in, early in their careers. Like, I think, I think Mark Messier had like one goal in the W in his first WHA season. And in his first NHL season, he had like 12 goals, but then they, they sort of both become these great players, these great leaders. They've both won championships with two different teams. Um, and, you know, I mean, you talk about, they talk about Brady has seven Super Bowls. That's more than any other team in the, in the NFL. Well, Mark Messier has six Stanley Cubs and that's more than everybody, but the Montreal Canadiens, Toronto Maple Leafs and Detroit Red Wings. And it's the same number as the uh, Chicago Blackhawks and the Boston Bruins. So there is an equivalent there. The age thing, not so much. Mark Messier, as he aged out, was really really bad especially in vancouver uh, but he did play until he was 43 and he was a point per game player right up to the age of i think 36 or 37 so that's that's pretty that's pretty good by hockey standards you know and 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 i mean you know in football they play once a week and hockey you play every other night so there's probably an equivalency there so i'd probably say if there is one it's probably mark messier yeah i struggled with this one because you know i was looking at it you know, is there a player who had sustained excellence and won titles throughout their career? And it, it's tough to find that. Like, even with Wayne Gretzky, you know, his last real shot at it was, you know, the, the final with LA and he didn't win the cup with the Kings. Um, you know, I, I guess if, you know, if Sidney Crosby has yet another uh, championship runner two in him, then you, you could say him, but I don't think it's going to be a Pittsburgh and I can't see him leaving Pittsburgh. Um, but the one name and it's not NHL, but it is hockey is Haley Wickenheiser. Mm. There's somebody that for a very long time was always in the championship mix. And even at the end of her playing career, she was helping Canada win titles, win gold medals. And when you think of, women's hockey, Haley Wickenheiser is one of, if not the first name you think of. Um, so that would be the, that would be the only equivalent I could think of uh, that would fit that Tom Brady mold of consistently making it all the way, even at a, even in the quote unquote twilight of their careers. Really good answers to both of you guys. I, I, it's funny, I was thinking from an NHL context, but I think the Wickenheiser answer is great. Mm -hmm. I, I had Messi as well because, you know, captaining two different teams at the Stanley Cup and 
often when doubted, you know, he, he ended the curse in New York and he also showed he could win the cup in Edmonton without Gretzky. And it's weird because hockey doesn't, you know, Brady is so unique because he, he's considered the greatest player, but he also is the longevity and winner guy. So it's like, he's got the winning of Henri Richard, but he's also got the goat status of a, of a Wayne Gretzky. But I think Messe to me is the closest because Brady is never perceived as the greatest pure talent. He's just, you know, a pure winner. And I think Messe is sort of perceived similarly, great leader, great winner. But I think, Ken, you hit the nail on the head. I don't need to say much more on that. Um, another little kind of fun debate topic. We're seeing, you know, Monday night, Austin Matthews scores again, 11 goals in 12 games this season. Now 58 goals in his past 82 games. And, you know, I, I took a little heat last week. I was kind of talking about David Pasternak, whether we could consider him as the number three player in the world behind McDavid and McKinnon. A lot of people are saying Matthews, and I'm even reconsidering that as well. Maybe it is Matthews. I'm curious what you guys think. Obviously, Oilers fans are going to get mad about this because they're going to send me a whole bunch of dry sidle gifts. But uh, do you think that Austin Matthews is now in the discussion with that top three? And is he kind of comfortably in the number three spot? Ryan, what do you think, sir? I think he's in the conversation. Um, and I think top three is that that's the debate point. Like it, I, you know, it, it's a cop out, but I would say like top five for sure, because, yeah. you know, McDavid McKinnon, um, I do think Pasternak begins, in, you know, belongs in that conversation. Um, and then, you know, obviously dry as well, you know, how much do you factor in defensive play when you're thinking about the best player in the league? I mean, we had the luxury for a decade of Sidney Crosby where it was like, he was unimpeachable. You know, it's like amazing defensively, amazing offensively. Patrice Bergeron, same thing. Amazing at both ends. You know, with McDavid and Drysaddle, they're amazing at one end, but they're really amazing at that one end. Um, when you get to Matthews and Pasternak and McKinnon, it's a little more even. Um, obviously the offense still weighs heavily, but you know, you can count on those guys in their own end more so. Um, so it's, it's a really difficult debate but yeah, he's certainly right there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think he's in that conversation. And I think he's in that conversation because number one, he's, he's the best goal scorer right now in the world. He's probably got the best shot of anybody ever. <laughs> and, 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 but, but, but I think what's, what's elevating him into that conversation is the fact that his game has become way more textured. Like he's winning faceoffs, he's playing a lot better defense. He's, you know, he's 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 contributing in all 200 feet of the ice, like every inch of that 200 feet of the ice. He's an impact player, and I think that's why he's in this conversation right now. You know what? I I'm, I'm with Ryan. I'm I'm not sure if he's in the top three. He probably would be right like today, <laughs> right now as we talk. Um, but I I don't think that's important. What I think is important, and what I am prepared to say right now is that Austin Matthews is poised to become the very first true superstar the Toronto Maple Leafs have ever had in their history. Like this is an organization that has been bereft of superstars. Um, you know, they've had two Hart Trophy winners, two in all those years, they've had two Hart Trophy winners. One of them was Ted Kennedy in 54, 55, and it was basically a retirement gift. They've had zero Norris Trophy winners, like zero, not a single one. Although probably King Clancy would have been good for one or two when he played if, if they had had the trophy available. But, uh, I, you know, this organization has never, ever had a true superstar. I don't think that was, I don't think it was Dave Keon. I don't think it was Doug Gilmore because it wasn't for long enough. I don't think it was Frank Mahovlich. I don't think it was Boris Salming. They were never 
one of those guys that was a top five player in the league. And I, I, by superstar, I defined top five player in the league for a period of five years or more. And I think Matthews, <laughs> assuming he sticks around long enough in Toronto, has the, the potential to be able to do that. I'm just going to pause here and just, I'm just patting myself on the back really hard because the day that the Leafs uh, won the lottery, I wrote an article saying that the Leafs have found the first superstar in their history. Took a lot of heat for that at the time. Well, who's laughing now? He's a superstar. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you guys. I think he's right there. And I know the analytics community, some say that they think he's number one. And, you know, we saw last night, there was a stat. He's the second youngest Leaf to get to 300 points. And, you know, his defense is underrated because of his takeaway skills. What we're seeing this year is physicality. And the one thing that was always missing from Matthew's game is for such a big guy, he's basically the size of an NFL wide receiver, doesn't hit. He had 105 hits total in his first four seasons. He's on pace this year for 129. He's got 19 hits in 12 games, which is to me shocking. He's totally changed the way he uses his body and he's creating space for himself by throwing some hits. He's never done that before. He was extremely, uh, or had no physicality almost to his game whatsoever. Uh, and, I, and I think he actually has been the best goal scorer in the game since his rookie season. He's the NHL leader in even strength goals, goals per 60, every type of goal metric you can find. Matthews has been the best in the league since he joined the league, since he had his 40-goal rookie season. The only thing I think, if there's anything that's missing from him being you know, locked into that top three, I don't know if he quite has that can take over a game anytime. You know, where and Matthews is going to get, you know, five or six points in a game. He's going to carry the team on his back during a playoff game. We haven't seen that yet. Right. And even right now, you know, look at all the points Mitch Marner is getting. And, and so Matthews is still looking for Marner to feed him. And that's okay. You, you don't have to be a playmaker. You can be a trigger man. But I'm just saying that I don't know if Matthews has the total take over a game and win it by himself factor yet that you know McDavid and McKinnon have. So if he gets that, then he's, I think, absolutely in that discussion. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the NWHL. I know it's been, I think, almost a week or if not a full week now since the tournament shut down, but I still think it's important to talk about. We saw the Riveters of the Connecticut, well, Connecticut, Connecticut. Uh, they backed out of the tournament due to COVID concerns, play is suspended. Uh, and there was a lot of talk about, you know, the loose bubble rules, a lot of communication problems with the league. And there have been debates raging on whether, you know, the, the NWHL or women's hockey is general, is, in general is going to be able to finally achieve that unified potent league with players earning full salaries without the help of the NHL. And I have a lot of different thoughts on it, but I, I want to start with you, Ken, because I know you wrote about it last week a couple times. So give me your thoughts on this topic, please. Well, after they had the news conference after the season was was canceled or, or suspended, I mean, apparently they still think that they can, they might be able to resurrect this thing. I have no idea how they think they can do that. Um, but after the season was suspended and I, I was in on the press, on the news conference and after that news conference, the first thought that came to my mind and that I tweeted was that I'm now convinced more than ever that 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 the NWHL is not going to survive without the help of the NHL. Um, you know, they, they've got it's interesting because the whole league is changing, right? Like there's a lot more focus on governance. They have a constitution now. They never had any of that stuff before. They brought in a couple of ownership groups that own the Boston Pride and the Toronto Six. Um, that are, are separate from the league. The league owns the rest of the teams. There was a time when the league owned all the teams. And, and I think they're, get, they're trying to get to the model where there's private ownership for every team. And they're, they're, they're trying to work towards that. And I get it. But to me, 
it's this was a disaster. This was a disaster. And, and, and there's no other way to describe it. It was a complete and utter disaster. You know, they started out saying bubble. And by the end, they were talking about restricted access environment. Um, I thought it was handled terribly. I thought I thought some, uh, you know, the, from what I understand, some of the players were out and about in Lake Placid. I mean, you know, this was an opportunity that this league missed that it may never, ever get again. You know, this league, you know, and, and what, what, what really bothers me about it and what really brings me down is that, you know, we know that most of the good players, like the really good elite world class players are not playing in this league. This would have been an opportunity for a lot of those lesser known players that are playing in this league this year to have a big stage. And, and it was just flushed right down the toilet. They were going to play the two semifinals and the final on NBC sports net. Uh, sports uh, sports channel and uh, that would have been great for this game and now that got flushed down the toilet uh, I'm not sure it can survive I do know one thing that the women's game is not going to thrive at the pro level until everybody gets on the same page that is just not going to happen I mean I I, I I get the PHP WHPA Professional Women's Hockey Players Association but I still don't understand what they think they're going to accomplish by not playing in a league and not and not sort of having themselves out there in the public consciousness all the time. I I see what they're doing. They're doing some good things. They've 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 made some uh, agreements with with NHL teams with New York Rangers now late late, late more more uh, lately with the Toronto Maple Leafs. But I I just think this game is too fractured and it's going in too many directions. Too many people can't get out of their own way. And until this thing starts to become a, an effort of, of, of one group, whether that's the NHL or not, I don't think it's going to be able to thrive. Yeah, I, I agree. And it, it feels like it, it, it seems kind of obvious uh, on the surface, you know, between the lack of NHL involvement and the dream gap tour, which you were just talking about, uh, Ken, everyone's just waiting for the NWHL to die. Like that's the biggest roadblock for women's hockey right now is that specific because you can't have two women's leagues. It's just it, it's untenable. You need all the best players playing against each other. You need all the resources going in the same direction. You need all the attention going in the same direction because I mean, frankly, sports fans just have so many opportunities right now that you can't, you can't be dividing your audience. And I think that if, whether it's the NWHL or a new iteration, a new league that unified all the best women's players in the world, you need NHL because you need best practices. You need someone to say, this is how you need to structure it. This is what you need to do to make sure that all your ducks in a, are in a row. If you're going to do a bubble, isolate everybody for two weeks beforehand. It's not like they were doing anything else. It's a two-week season. Like, you know, plan it so that every player in a bubble isolated. Then you play the games. Then you wouldn't have had any of these problems because you had the, you'd have the testing at the beginning. You have testing throughout. Um, I mean, they pulled off the world juniors and, you know, granted the world juniors had a bigger budget, but you, you have all these examples of, of best practices that could have been put into place that were either ignored or just, or just that the NWHL couldn't pull off 
for whatever reason, you know, maybe it was a matter of resources, but, but that's the problem here. And I think that the, you know, the problem is you have somewhat of a normal structure in the NWHL in terms of franchises and, and a schedule and whatnot. And then you have the dream gap tour that seems to have better leadership, but in a more unorthodox format where you don't have this regular schedule with teams that have, you know, logos and whatnot. And, and frankly, you have better players on the dream gap tour. Mm -hmm. They gotta, they gotta put it together and take the best of both worlds and they need somebody um, you know, whether it's the NHL or I don't know whether it's another major sports organization that they think, you know, would, would represent them better they need somebody to help them with leadership and best practices because right now they're just kind of stuck in the mud. Yeah. I, I'm with you guys. I think there's just so much upside to some kind of partnership or backing from the NHL, because if you don't have that, what you get is this, this pattern of cannibalism of warring factions. It goes back to the CWHL versus the NWHL. Now it's the dream gaps of PWHPA versus the NWHL where no one's on the same side and you end up, with you know entities like the NWHL, who they don't have the secure backing of, of, a, of a big corporate entity like the NHL. So you end up being forced to temporarily get in bed or start to get in bed with someone like Barstool. And I feel for what happened with the NWHL because you know, on one hand, some people and even the players are divided over this. Some people are saying, well, you have to you have to make a deal with the devil if you want to make money. Sometimes, you know, every big business is gonna make decisions you don't like. But at the same time, you have Barstool last night. When Niels Hoglander gets a puck in the face, he's bleeding. The tweet's deleted. Barstool puts out a tweet comparing the blood on his face to, I don't want to get into detail, but I'll just say menstrual cycles, okay? So you're making a deal with the devil and the devil's going to spit in your face. I don't blame the NWHL for trying to distance itself from an entity like Barstool. I feel bad for them for being in that type of situation where they're being disrespected by the very entity that is also claiming, you know, we have a strong female executive that can back us and can help save your business, promote your business, but you're going to put tweets out like that and spit in the women's face. That's horrible. So I think if you go to the end of the end NHL as a backer, you're going to get consistency. You're going to get cross promotion from the players. Just like when we had, you know, the, the three on three action at the all-star game and you had women in the skills competition, that's the kind of exposure you get for the women when they're partnering with the NHL. And the roadblock has never been uh, uh, the women's players desire for help from the NHL. I think it would almost be unanimous that they would love the support from the NHL. It's always been, well, the NHL is risk averse. They're not going to be willing to take a chance if they're not sure that the, that the women's leagues will make money. Uh, have you ever heard of the Olympics? The NHL does not get revenue from the Olympics, but why do they send players to grow the game? So can you not back the women's league as an investment to grow the game worldwide? I, I think to me, there's a comparison there. And I think it would be a worthy investment from the NHL. And I don't think the actual, you know, the given the number of teams in the league, the level of financial commitment, it's not going to be crippling for the NHL to do it. And I think it'd be a worthwhile cause. Uh, let's do some listener questions. The first question is from Mr. Mantila. Mantila, Mantila. There's some umlauts in the name, so I don't know the exact <laughs> emphasis, okay? But I believe Mr. Mantila is finished because the question is about Tuka Rask. Uh, and the question is, will Tuka continue and where? Chara signed elsewhere, so the level of core won't be traded or let go, aka Lemieux attitude can be questioned. I don't know what the Lemieux reference is, uh, Mr. Mantila. I apologize. Um, but if we're talking about Tuka Rask's future with the Boston Bruins, uh, I don't see him leaving for a couple of reasons. So yes, I know he's a UFA this summer, but Rask uh, throughout his career has established himself as very fiercely devoted to his private life, his family life. 
He's been very open in the offseason about never wanting to leave Boston, almost implying like I'm a Boston Bruin or, or I retire. Those are, that's the type, the type of language that he's been using. It's so strong. So I don't, I don't see Tuka Rask wanting to go anywhere else. And for the Bruins, you know, you already have Yaroslav Halak, who is a UFA as well this offseason. So you don't have an NHL level starter ready or, or able to take over. You have Dan Vladder, but the potential, you know, you would need him to have had an apprenticeship where he got in 20 games as a backup. And you, that way, you know, he's ready. Kind of like, you know, you had Ilya Samsonov in Washington. They could let Braden Holtby go because they saw a lot of Samsonov last year. Whereas later, Vladder, I don't, I'm not used to saying Vladish. this. Vladish, there you go. Uh, <laughs> not even close. Yeah. Just, you know, you ever just, you, there's a player you just never said his name out loud before because you don't talk about him enough. That's one. Uh, but that guy <laughs> hasn't played enough in the NHL he hasn't got that apprenticeship so you can't just hand him the keys you still need Rask I think in Boston so to me I see him staying what say you Mr. Ken Campbell if I were Ken Holland this is what I would do I would as soon as free agency in the days leading up to free agency I would go out I would rent a Brinks truck I would back it up to the nearest bank in Edmonton and I would say Throw as much money in here as you possibly can. Don't leave any room. And or or I would just go to the cap guy and say, jam as much cap space as you can into this Brinks truck. And then I would close the truck and I would keep driving until I got to to uh, to Boston. And I would say, Tuca, here, what name your price? As we'll pay you as much as we we can pay you to get you on this team. And that's what I would do if I were, if I were Ken Holland and I'd worry about the cap ramifications later, I, would you know, start throwing guys overboard. I'd start buying guys out. I'd do whatever. Um, you know, uh, that's what I would do. Uh, I'm not sure it would be enough to get Tuka Rask to go from Boston to Edmonton in the twilight of his career. Probably not. Um, but you know, Mr. Mantilla brings up a good point. I mean, the template's already been established. We, nobody thought Zidane Ochero was going anywhere. Nobody, like nobody thought he was going anywhere. They thought he was either going to play in Boston or retire. And as it turns out, he's gone to Washington and he's fared pretty well there. Um, so I think there will be a market for Tuka Rask. I think there's a lot of teams that are looking for that kind of goaltending, even though he hasn't been great this year so far. Um, I think there will be a big market for him. But I, I think when it comes down to it, I'm, my instincts probably tell you tell me that I'm with you, Matt, that he'll probably – stay in Boston. He'll probably be welcomed back in Boston and uh, either that or he'll, uh, he'll ride off into the sunset. Yeah, I, I agree with you guys. Uh, Ken, I love the Edmonton idea. I had the, the same concept, uh, but just for funsies, uh, another option that I was thinking of Carolina would be perfect because there is a team that it's been on the rise for years now. Their goaltending has been good. Sometimes it's been great, uh, but never consistently. And with Peter Mrazek, the injury bug just keeps hitting him. And I think with Tuka Rast, you bring him in and he could be the final piece of that puzzle for Carolina next year. When you think about what they would have in front of him, not only you know a, a very nice defense core, uh, probably one of the best defense cores in the league, but also a forward core that features Svechnikov, Aho, Taravainen, um, you know, a host of other players that are very good. You put Rask there, then you know who your guy is. You know he can be consistent. 
Um, and you know, you, you keep one of Reimer or Morazic as the, the backup and, and then you have the luxury of having a very good backup, but I think Carolina, you know, they're, they're poised to make a run, but that's the one area they could improve on. And Rask would be that guy. And he would also be the best Rask they've ever had in Carolina ahead of Victor. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine if, if Tuka Rask and James Reimer were a goaltending tandem, Good point. Wow. Mind blowing. Yeah. I like that idea because I think he could put them over the top. You also have some some finish. He could, he could have a nice finish connection with Sebastian Ajo and Tuvo Teravainen as well. And not as much of a dramatic move geographically to go from Boston to Carolina. Interesting. Very interesting. Assuming they can also you know afford to sign him and re-sign Dougie Hamilton. So we'll see about that. Uh, we'll do two more questions before the rapid fire game. The next one is from The Cool Show. Maybe it's a local radio show. I'm not sure. The Cool Show. Uh, what is the average number of games each team will play this season? 56 is beginning to look like an unreachable mark. I think it's a fair point. I think maybe if you average out the entire league, it's going to end at something like 50. Um, I could see the North getting to 56. I could, the way the North is trending right now, every team's going to get to 56, knock on wood. Um, but the other divisions we'll see because, you know, we've had so many teams that have outbreaks and that doesn't mean we're, we're not going to get second outbreaks, you know, several weeks from now for the same teams. You never know the way things are going. So I could see eventually the NHL having to pull the plug and say, well, if you we want to get the season wrapped up by the summer before the Olympics, we may have to go by points percentage and, you know, declare the season over at 50 games, something like that. So I'll say average will be 50. Uh, what do you think, Kenneth? I'm still holding out for 56. I, I'm still going to, I'm still going to hold out for that. I I'm hoping that this early sort of um, trend that we're seeing that they'll get, you know, they'll, they'll be able to rein that in a little more that, you know, the, and then they'll be able to make up the games after, you know, after the season, I, I, I think May 8th for the, the end of the regular season is no chance. <laughs> if you want to get the regular season in, I think it's going to have to be extended by at least two weeks. Um, and, and so, yeah, and, and I think part of it will come down to whether or not there actually is an Olympics this summer. I, I, as far as I know, I don't think it's a given that they're going to go ahead with this. And if, if in a month or two, they decide, you know what, we're pulling the pin on these, on these ones too, then the NHL can just take their time, I think. And, and, and if that's the case, they can just extend the season for however long they need to. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I agree with, uh, with Matt. I'm going to say an average of 50. Um, you know, Ken, you, you make a good point about the Olympics, uh, but I do also wonder if the NHL wants to stay on their schedule as much as possible, just with Seattle coming in and, you know, with the way they've um, set up the off season with, you know, assuming the draft goes when it's supposed to and, you know, free agency, things like that. So they want to stay on the schedule Maybe they do go by sort of a points percentage in the East division um, and uh, any other division that gets impacted greatly um, by postponements or cancellations. So yeah, I think average 50 uh, is probably a, a safe bet. All righty. Uh, for our last question, you know, this guy's becoming a bit of a question legend, Matt Boehringer. He's coming up with some very interesting outside the box questions. He promised a couple of weeks ago he was going to come up with a better one or a new exciting one. And he took a couple of weeks and he delivered a doozy for us. Who would be more effective in their prime? Zdeno Chara using Johnny Gaudreau's stick or Johnny Gaudreau using Zdeno Chara's stick? I thought this through. I'm, I'm very confident in my answer, okay? So if you're Johnny Gaudreau, your best skills are your speed and your stick handling. With the Zdeno Chara stick, 
both your best attributes are taken away. Nice. The stick is too heavy for him to drag around the ice. He can't he can't use his dexterity to stick handle. I think it totally derails Johnny Gaudreau's career. Whereas if you give Chara the Gaudreau stick, yes, you know he maybe he's not as dominant on the penalty kill. Maybe his shot power takes a hit, but he could still he could still fight guys, hit guys, block shots, just be a physical dominator. And he could also just maul guys by throwing the stick away if he really needed to. So I, I say Chara with the Gaudreau stick has a better career than Gaudreau. Because also Chara can just lean over if he really needs to. And, you know, and if he's if he's good at mini sticks, then he's good at Johnny Gaudreau's stick. But Gaudreau, I think, would have a big problem. So I, I say Chara. Mr. Ryan Kennedy, what say you? Uh, I agree. I think Zdeno Chara has more success. Uh, I think you summed it up very well. So the only thing I will add was, was that I enjoyed picturing Johnny Gaudreau with a huge stick because it reminded me of the guy in the corner in bubble hockey. <laughs> it might, Matt, you're a big hockey nerd. You, you know, all this stuff. They both shoot left, right? They do. Correct. They both shoot, shoot left. Correct. 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 Yeah, okay. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a, a hindrance uh, in terms of the curve of the stick. Yeah. I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to go with Chara too, because um, you know, it just, it, it would just be too unwieldy for Johnny, Johnny Goudreau. Although, you look at it this way, Johnny Goudreau could cut Zdeno Chara's stick, but Zdeno Chara could not make Johnny Goudreau's stick any longer. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going to get it. I'm going to take it on that technicality, okay? And say <laughs> Johnny Goudreau because he could cut Zdeno Chara's stick. I know it's not in the spirit of any of this, but I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> That's, it's true. I thought about cutting the stick, but I was like, oh, that's not fair. You can't cut it. You can't cut it. Okay, we're going to end the podcast with the rapid fire game. Ken is the host this time. I am the first answer, which I hate. It's so stressful to go first. Uh, and Ryan will be second answer. Ken, we are ready. Let's begin. All right, boys. Let's start it off. Best non-Bugs Bunny Looney Tunes character. Mm, I'm going to say uh, Elmer Fudd. He's good for a laugh here and there. Waspily Wabbit. Okay. Interesting. I'm going to go Foghorn Leghorn because he's hilarious and somehow not racist. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm gonna go with Foghorn Leghorn too. He, it, you know, he's he's come up with some great lines. Nice kid, but about as smart as a bag of wet sawdust. <laughs> okay, so I keep pitching him. Philip Deno, underrated. Uh, I'm gonna say now properly rated. Was underrated. I think now he's about right. I'm gonna say no because nobody in Montreal is underrated. Uh, other than maybe Jeff Petrie, and that's going to change by like tomorrow. <laughs> I'm actually going to say that Philip Denon has gone so long as being one of these guys that everybody talks as being underrated that he's actually overrated now. And, you know, I mean, he's the number one center on the highest scoring team in the NHL, and he has zero goals. So as of today, he's overrated. Hmm. Um, in honor of Valentine's Day, which is coming up this weekend, what is your go to song? To get your wife in the mood. Oh boy. <laughs> uh, I don't think we have. Stephen just writes in. Whoa. I don't think we have a go-to song uh, that's used for romance. But uh, the song that played at our wedding, our first dance, was "Try" by Blue Rodeo. So I'll go with that one because okay. that one song has some romantic connotations. Also, "Hey Ho" by the Lumineers was the song that played when uh, we exited down the aisle after we got hitched. So that's cool. another one. I think it sounds called Hey Ho. I think so. Yeah. I'm going to go with The Drowners by Suede. Good. 
Good choice. Good choice. It sounds like this. What the <laughs> hell is that? You don't know anything about music, do you, man? <laughs> well, when Google when... swayed after the podcast. <laughs> okay, the Drowners by Swayed. What, a... honey? I'm really in the mood tonight. Let's play the Drowners. I just assume that every, even the most romantic Ryan Kennedy song is. My, I've got range. <laughs> when my wife and I started dating back in 1991, uh, More Than Words by Extreme had come out. So that was kind of our song. And our, our, first, uh, our first dance at our wedding was Beautiful by Gordon Lightfoot. So I'd probably go with one of those ones. Um, which NHL team right now is must viewing for you? Um. <sighs> I don't know what it says about me, but the Vancouver Canucks, because like they have interesting, exciting offensive players, but it's also just very dramatic. And I just like can't look away at whatever's happening. Mm. I'll go the other way and I'll go with Vancouver's Bets Noir. The Montreal Canadiens for me, if they're on, um, I like that. There's just a lot of good stuff going on with the Habs and they're, they're fun to watch. For me, it's the Winnipeg Jets. I just, I, I, for one reason, for some reason, I just always have to be tuned into their games. I think part of it is because I think Dennis Bayak, their play-by-play guy, is like the most underrated play-by-play guy in hockey. I think he's amazing. Um, but they're just a team that's well put together. They're exciting. They, they can win in a whole bunch of different ways. They just, they just have a bunch of good players. I just, I just love watching the Winnipeg Jets play. Um, okay, the last question. Wow, we got through this pretty quickly. What is the best thing ever? Is it A, opening and smelling a pack a, a, a pack of tennis balls? B, peeling the glue off the back of a of a uh, of a, a gift card. C, blowing your nose in the shower. Or D, whatever you want to pick. What what did you what do you blow your nose on? Are you just blowing it in your hands? No, you're just blowing it down the drain. You just blow a little snot rocket in the shower. Come on, guys, you don't okay. do that. I, I'm gonna choose. So I'm gonna choose a no. different one. And it's 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 uh. So you guys don't blow your nose in the shower, like no, seriously. You don't do a snot rocket that down in, into the drain in the shower. No, I I, I do want to get out of the shower. Okay. <laughs> I think those are all decent yeah. picks. I'm gonna say <laughs> this is gonna this is gonna get weird, everyone. But like, especially if you're playing a summer sport, so let's say baseball, like playing little league baseball, <laughs> peeling off your jock strap when you get home, <laughs> and it, and you're, it's been so sweaty and it like tickles you, like, Ugh! and it feels really good to get that thing off. So that'll be. I feel like that's the spirit of the type of things you're talking about. Okay, so yeah. jock strap, okay. jock strap peel off. <laughs> All right. Since I don't go to the same websites as Matt. I'm going to say uh, peeling the glue off the back of a gift card. I, I do enjoy that. A lot of fun and popping the little bubbles too in the, in the shrink oh, for sure. the, the bubble wrap. Um, yeah. For me, I guess it's probably, you know, I, as you probably can imagine, it's blowing my nose in the shower. <laughs> an enormous amount of liberation in that. Followed very closely by, I don't know if you guys downhill ski at all. I do like twice a year and I'm not a big fan of it. My wife loves it. My kids love it. So I go out and do it with them. But the feeling of taking off ski boots after you've had them on all day, after after skiing, there's just no feeling like it in the world. It's just the best feeling <laughs> because they both each of them weighs about thirty seven pounds, right? 
And so just getting those things off is great. But anyways, that's all I got, boys. Good picks. I also nominate nice. when you find a really good piece of lint in your belly button. If you're an innie, I'm an innie. I tried to pull one out right now so I could have shown one for you, but there's nothing in there today. <laughs> Very disappointing. And that concludes one of our weirdest podcasts ever. Uh, we'll be back next week. And hopefully, hopefully Patrick Lining has played a shift by then. And hopefully the Vancouver Canucks have won a game by then. We'll see what happens. That was so odd. <laughs>